everybody. It's Lethia Young at Cantor here. I cover large gap small makeup biotech. I'm very happy to have Al Nylum Pharmaceuticals. I have Dr. Yvonne Greenstreet, who's the president and COO of the company. Um, Yvonne, maybe in the first 30 to 60 seconds, just give us kind of, it's been, again, another exciting year for Al Nylum. Just talk about some of the accomplishments over the past 12 months. Yeah, Alethea, thanks for having me. And it's a real pleasure to be here. Look, this has been an amazing year for us as we've continued to progress against our Peace for Fifth Times uh, 25 strategy. And we're making really good progress, um, you know, on all fronts. And I'm sure we'll cover off um, many of the achievements as we go through this uh, conversation. But, but bottom line, it's been a terrific year for us so far. So let's talk a little bit about the TTR um, program. So Impatro, you know, it's been on the market for a while. Um, just tell us a little bit about how the TTR space has evolved since the approval and, and where you see opportunities for TTR and polyneuropathy as well. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, you know, um, if we just reflect on when Onpatro was approved, um, you know, in August 2018 for the treatment of polyneuropathy of HATTR amyloidosis. And, you know, this is a real landmark for us, right? The first RNA therapeutic ever approved and the first treatment approved in the US for HATTRPN. And if you think about you know, where we started and where we are now. We're being sold in more than 30 countries. There are over 1,725 patients worldwide on commercial on Patro. And at the end of QT, uh, Q2, sorry, looking at $114 million in global net revenues. And I think this has just been an amazing commercial performance. And we're continuing to see steady and continuous, you know, patient growth. One of the things that actually I think has struck me as quite remarkable is the fact that we're seeing more than 90% patient compliance to treatment. This is an IV administered medicine once every three weeks. And I think what this tells me is that patients are likely experiencing real benefit. Um, but you asked the question about, you know, how has the field um, emerged? And I think, I think what, what, what is happening is that we're getting increasing recognition that ATTR amyloidosis is a multi-system disease, okay? We're also seeing the introduction of new therapeutics to the market, as well as investigational programs. And this is really increasing physician and patient awareness and therefore driving diagnosis, growing use of PYP scans, and all this is great for patients. So if we think about the market overall, it really has become a market growth story, a bit like MS or RA, and there's room for multiple players. And on Nylon, we're continuing to innovate, right? Um, TTRSCO4, our highly potent um, agent with an annual dosing regimen based on our Acaria platform, continuing to deliver for patients now and in the future. And I think I'll just end with one last thing. Um, I think it's important to remember that we're only at the beginning, right? We've only um, addressed a small fraction of the potential opportunity in HATTR for uh, polyneuropathy. Um, with our 1725 um, patients, 1725 patients, and there are approximately 20 to 30,000 patients worldwide for whom Onpatro could be appropriate. So there's a lot of growth opportunity going forward, which we're very excited about. Yeah, another thing that everybody's very excited about is Apollo B and Helios B and cardiomyopathy <laughs> um, and how that's going to grow the market opportunity. So just, you know, how are you thinking about these two studies and, and the probability of, you know, those studies like, you know, hitting what they need to hit? No, look, I mean, we're obviously very focused on these two studies and, and excited about the opportunity for both Patisran and Vutrisran to become, you know, really important medicines for ATTR um, with cardiomyopathy, both hereditary and wild type. And just to remind everybody that Apollo B is the phase three study um, uh, with Patisran um, in patients with hereditary 
um, and well type ATTR uh, with cardiomyopathy. We completed enrollment in, in May with over 300 patients. And the primary endpoint in this study is a six minute walk distance at 12 months. This is a validated endpoint in cardiomyopathy. And you know, we think these data are going to be really important in helping physicians understand the activity of Ampatro in this setting. We should get top line results from this study in mid-2022. Now, Helios B, the other study you mentioned, is our phase three study of Butriceran in patients with either hereditary or wild type ATTR with cardiomyopathy. Remember, Butriceran is our subcutaneously administered RNAi therapeutic for TTR and importantly administered once quarterly and also the potential to be um, administered just twice a year, um, which is actually quite remarkable. And from an enrollment perspective in Helios B, we completed that in August with over 600 patients. And the primary endpoint in this study is mortality and recurrent CV events at 30 months. So importantly, it's a hospitalization and mortality outcome study. And the results for this study on the 30-month endpoint are expected in early 2024. Now, Rithi, I'm sure you're going to ask me about um, the interim analysis, so I'll just go ahead and kind of take that with this question. Um, you know, in the protocol for this study, we do have the option um, to do an interim, and that could potentially allow for an accelerated data readout and subsequent regulatory filing. But what we'd like to do is to wait until we have results from the Apollo B study, because we'll then be able to understand better, um, um, you know, how patients um, <clears throat> um, um, respond in this study and then make a call as to whether we will conduct the interim analysis for Helios B and exactly what that would look like. Um, but I think it's important to say that we're actually delighted to have been able to complete enrollment of Helios B and we've done this way ahead of schedule. Um, so now, even with a 30-month endpoint study, we're looking at an early 2024 readout of the study. Um, if we did an interim, that might be able to accelerate that to 2023 um, compared to 2024 for, for the full study. So, you know, there's, a, <clears throat> there's about a year in it between the potential <clears throat> outcome from an interim, <clears throat> but also from the full study. Interesting. So it seems like kind of we'll see what happens with B, and then one can we might see what that might relate to what happens with uh, Helios B, the Apollo B study. Okay. Um, so you know, I guess you know one thing is paramount for everybody who's trying to get a grasp on is like confidence, and you know these studies reading out positive. But you have Apollo and you have Helios A, where you did see a stat seg improvement on NT Pro BNP. Yeah. And I guess maybe think about how relevant that cardiac endpoint is in making a read to Apollo B or Helios B. No, at least that's a that's a really good question. Um, and and as and as you know, NT pro BMP, it's a well known biomarker of cardiac stress. And I think um, what's important is that we've seen in both Apollo and Helios A, so treatment with either Patisran or Vutrisran, we saw statistically significant reductions in NT pro BMP. And I think, you know, this is really good initial evidence that these two therapeutics may potentially result in improvement of the cardiac manifestations of the disease. But of course, we're going to have to wait for the cardiomyopathy studies to see exactly how this plays out. But we think it's encouraging. 
Okay. Well, there's going to be another one that I'm trying to make a read through on, so get ready. Um, so, so you, or I think you're going to announce some additional 18 month data in Helios A, which should have some cardiac endpoints. And just what should we be looking for in that study? And do you, how important is 18 month endpoint versus, you know, like the nine month endpoint in your yeah. mind? Yeah. So just to remind everybody that <clears throat> earlier this year, we reported the positive nine month results from Helios A. Um, you know, showing that the tree strand led to an improvement in neurological impairment and quality of life in a majority of patients. And these results form the basis of our NDA and MAA findings for the tree strand. And we're now looking at an FDA decision for the tree strand in um, April of uh, next year. And um, the 18 month results from this study will be reported later this year. And as you say, you know, it'll include the additional cardiac endpoints. We've talked about NT pro BMP, but also echocardiographic parameters like left ventricular wall thickness and longer, longitudinal strain, as well as technetium scintigraphy. And I think these exploratory endpoints, um, you know, are going to help us further characterize Boutrisran's potential impact on the cardiac manifestations of the disease. So I think it's important to stay tuned uh, with these data as we present them. Okay, so they're they're important and interesting as a read. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, can you just remind us for the opportunity for patients in polyneuropathy where Ampatra could go if not approved for cardiomyopathy? And then just talk about maybe the opportunity if you are approved or you have positive yeah. data for cardiomyopathy. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, just to, just to remind us all of, of the patient um, you know, numbers um, here. So for hereditary ATTI amyloidosis, we think there are about 50,000 patients worldwide. And of these patients, we believe that about 25 to 30,000 patients present with symptoms of polyneuropathy, which means that they're eligible for treatment with Ompatro with our, with our current label. Um, but if we're able to successfully obtain label expansion from Ompatro, this really has a huge impact on the addressable market to include all the 50,000 patients with hereditary disease but importantly, the estimated 200 to 300,000 patients with wild-type disease. This is likely an underestimate, to be honest, but even with these numbers, it represents a tenfold increase in the size of our opportunity. So very important, um, a very important uh, um, a potential catalyst for the company going forward. Definitely. Um, so Helios B really did, it was notable how fast it enrolled, especially during COVID, mind you. Um, what do you think drove that quick enrollment, do, you know, compared to like Apollo B? I mean, you yeah. think people just know more about the drug or how do y'all yeah. think about that? Well, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, enrollment in Helios B went, went really well. And it's hard, you know, with these things, it's hard to kind of figure out exactly why. But, you know, I do think there are a couple of things. I think you've just pointed out um, the profile of Vitrisaran, its quarterly subcutaneous dosing profile. I think that's created a lot of interest for investigators. Um, and patients, you know, I think it's a really exciting value proposition. Um, so I think that's one point. I think the second is actually we're just getting kind of just a lot of experience working in the TTR space now, you know, with the investigators, with patients, working globally with all the sites. Um, and I think our clinical development team have done a really good job, um, you know, setting up sites and helping to get patients enrolled. And I think it's I think it's one of the benefits actually of, of having a franchise and, and really building expertise in an area with first, you know, on Patro and now Vutri. So, you know, we're very pleased um, with where things have, you know, got to. And as you said, it's a very important study for us. So 
great that it's enrolled well. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I feel like you guys kind of planned your flag in the sand on TTR, yeah. so it probably yields dividends that are unappreciated and appreciable at times. So that's yeah. interesting. Um, another situation that kind of came out through 2021 was obviously the presence of gene editing via Telia within Vivo data. I mean, obviously the people focused on the three people at the higher dose where they, they saw TTR knockdown. So I guess just want to get your perspective on you know, potential gene editing? Is that something that you guys are interested in? Or how do you think about that versus the products you have, which could have really long dosing intervals as well? <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, kind of at a macro level, as you know, Alethea, it's, it's great to have lots of options for, for patients. And, you know, I think it's a really exciting milestone, actually, the data that were presented by Intelia for the gene editing field. So that's that's all good. But I think when it comes down to kind of what we're doing, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise you to for me to say that we really believe in the potential of RNA therapeutics. So on Patro, Patrice, and then I've already talked about TTRSCO4. And we think that um, you know, this this mechanism, um, you know, the silencing mechanism has the potential to 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 be the market leader in ATTR amyloidosis. So whilst genetics is exciting, you know, there's still a there's still some ways to go, right? Um, I think folk are going to need to be reassured about safety. You know, there's permanent alteration of, of DNA and potential for off-target effects. Um, you know, I wonder how kind of Intelli is going to manage to do placebo-controlled studies. Um, you know, um, you know, we think they'll need to show superiority um, against an RNAi silencer in a phase three study, um, at least from a value perspective, and that's going to be kind of a big study. So, you know. Gene editing is going to be competing against a really strong product profile. You know, to take Patrice Ram, uh, quarterly, six monthly doses, um, um, potential for, um, and then TTRSCO4, you know, annual vaccine like dosing. Um, so I think that's going to be a, a tough value proposition to beat, to be honest, and particularly when you overlay all the access and pricing considerations um, that will need to be addressed. And if we're talking about TTR amyloidosis, particularly, you know, wild type, which is where the, you know, larger market is, these patients are in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And, you know, when you've got alternatives that are proven and, and less expensive, um, I think those are the therapies that will that will win at the end of the day. But um, all being said, competition is a good thing. It's what keeps us, uh, what keeps us hungry, keeps us focused, keeps us continuing to want to bring forward innovation for patients. So it's all good. Um, that's a great answer, by the way. But um, I'm curious about like these polyneuropathy patients. I mean, this is not like having a cold or something. I mean, these patients are quite sick. So they're probably seeing their doctors anyway. You know, so like, I guess, what's your perspective or what have you heard from, you know, obviously selling the drug, you know, when you think about like practically like would someone want to take something that's a one and done? Would they rather go in and kind of be under the care of a physician four times a year or even, I'm sure you're working on things that could make it even shorter than that potentially. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think, you know, these patients, as you say, you know, um, go and see their physicians on a fairly frequent basis. I would have thought at least, you know, two or three times a year. So actually having an, you know, an RNAi therapeutic like Butristran, which they can, they can get when they go see their doctor um, and at the same time be evaluated by their physician, I think is going to be, um, I think it's going to be really, um, um, you know, um, something that patients are going to want, to be honest with you. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think there may be some disease areas where, you know, um, gene editing is going to play a role. But when we think about TTR amyloidosis, I, I really do believe that, uh, you know, it's going to be the RNAi silences that will win out here. 
It's interesting. So some people worry about like when Patricia enters the market, that's going to take share from Ampatro. I guess, how do you think about kind of delineating that or clarifying for people? Maybe it's just that there are tons of patients that are still not treated, but just curious. Yeah. So um, kind of where are we with Patrice Ran? Um, the NDA is under review at the FDA for HATTR polyneuropathy based on the uh, nine-month results in QDSA that we just discussed um, a few moments ago. And we've also just submitted our MAA for Vutrip approval in Europe. So that, that's kind of where things are. Um, and assuming successful um, approval, we expect to launch in the second quarter of, of next year and you know, you know what we're going to do is you know use the infrastructure that we've already built from Petro um, to support commercialization of Utricaran. So, so we actually think that you know again going back to this franchise model, starting with on Petro and then kind of you know bringing um, you know Vutri um, to the market is actually going to be um, you know a really um, um, positive um, uh, commercial agenda for us. Um, but I think, I think, you know, as you say, um, you know, some folk kind of think about, you know, how many patients are going to stay on on Patro, how many are going to switch, how are we going to think about both drugs on the market? And, and we believe that both on Patro and Patriceran actually are going to, are going to both have a place in the market. You know, a lot of patients have already been treated, uh, with on Patro, um, you know, some for the three years that we've been approved and they've had a really good experience. Um, so I think some patients with Onpatro will not want to switch. Um, but I think the profile of Vitrisaran, you know, the efficacy, safety, and the dosing, <clears throat> and the treatment burden, which is much lower with Vitrisaran, I think will encourage a lot of um, new patients who are initiating therapy to go on to Vutri. Uh, well, there's a lot more products than Onpatros and Vutri, so let's move on. Um, we want to talk a little bit about how the launches are going to give Lari Naxlumo. And uh, just remind us of the market potential for those indications as well. Sure. So just to um, remind everybody, so Givlari is our RNAi therapeutic approved for the treatment of acute hepatic porphyria. And this is a devastating ultra-orphan disease, and it's got tremendous kind of disease burden. The launch is going well so far. You know, as of uh, the end of our second quarter, June 30th, um, there were 270 patients worldwide on commercial therapy, and we achieved $31 million in global net product uh, revenues. And that's a 24% quarter-on-quarter growth compared to Q1. So, you know, it's been, a, it's been a very successful launch so far. And we're pleased to see um, that the prescriber base continues to expand you know, with new prescribers coming on board. <clears throat> You know, what's interesting um, is that is they're coming aboard, particularly from community centers and not just um, porphyria centers as, as centers of excellence, which we think is a very encouraging sign. Because this is a disease where patient finding is, is going to be critical. Um, you know, the symptoms of AHP overlap with a ton of other diseases like um, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, so we're going to have to do a lot around um, disease awareness and uh, medical education. <clears throat> you asked a little bit about the size of the market and, you know, we're still, you know, we're still learning as we go, still relatively early in this launch. And, you know, we're still of the mind that there are about 3,000 AHP patients with active disease who are diagnosed in the US and Europe. Um, and, you know, if you look at that, we think Givlari could well represent, a, you know, $500 million 
um, peak market opportunity for us. So that's Gibalari going great. We're very pleased. Um, you know, turning now to Oxlumo, um, and that's our RNI therapeutic. And that was only approved last year, actually, um, for the treatment of primary hyperoxaluria type 1. <clears throat> and this is another um, ultra-rare disease. And just, it, you know, what's exciting to me, actually, is that it's our first medicine approved for, um, you know, for patients of all ages, including, including very young children. Um, so that's another first for us at our nylon. And look, the, the launch is going well. Um, you know, we're seeing, you know, continued demand um, through the drug's second full quarter of launch. Um, here we achieved $16 million of global net product revenues, and we um, we got approximately 100 patients on commercial oxaluma treatment um, as of the end of the second quarter. Um, one, one aspect here is the kind of geographic expansion of Oxluma being so early in its launch. That's moving along nicely. Uh, we got a recent approval in Brazil. Uh, launch is underway in Germany and got ATU supply in France. Um, and in this, in this um, disease, we think there are about 3,000 potentially symptomatic patients in the US and, and Europe. And so, you know, with that kind of number... Um, we continue to think that Oxaluma is probably kind of another sort of 500 million peak sales market type of opportunity. Um, why do you think kind of, you know, the launch is going so fast for Oxlumo? And I guess you cited 500 million, but is there potential, potentially is a little bigger? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, let's start with kind of why it's going well. You know, I think the EAP conversions, particularly in, in Europe, have contributed to this, you know, initial kind of strength in the launch. Um, I think the other point, and I kind of touched on it a little bit, is that, you know, is is the opportunity for Oxlumo across kind of all age groups, and we're seeing kind of broad use of Oxlumo, not just across all age groups, but actually um, all all severity um, types, all EGFR categories. Um, I think our work on the access front has has helped too. Um, We've got, you know, access to more than 80% of U.S. lives, which is, you know, not bad um, for a recent launch. Um, I think really, you know, probably the critical key point here is that, you know, Oxlumo is, is filling a, a significant unmet need for patients where there are no approved therapeutic options. Um, I mean, you asked about, you know, how we're thinking about the size of the opportunity. Uh, we, we're not updating our estimates at, at this point in time, although, as I said, we're pretty encouraged by our progress with the launch so far. Okay, fine. Um, I guess moving on to Dicerna and just as a com competitive agent in the space, I mean, they had data that looked, you know, like it would work in, in PH1 patients. Do you, how do you think about them as a potential competitor? Yeah, look, I don't think there's really anything in the um, in the Dosaran phase three data that suggests that it has a differentiated profile compared to Oxlumo and PH1. And, you know, we're we're very confident about, you know, Oxlumo and its positioning. I mean, really our, um, you know, medicine here is supported by, you know, positive data from, a, from, you know, from the most comprehensive phase three program that's ever been conducted in the PH1 patient population. So we've got aluminum A in children who are 
six years of age and older as well as adults. We've got Illuminate B in pediatric patients up to five years of age. And then Illuminate C in patients with advanced uh, PH1. So it really is a very comprehensive um, package. And, you know, maybe just the final thing to note is that, you know, you know I, I think we expect Dosaran to be launched. Um, but, but if that happens, it, it'll be coming to market about two years behind Oxlumo. And uh, so we've got a, got a head start here. Um, so, you know, Dyson has got a lot of ground to make up and uh, I don't think they've got quite as comprehensive a data set as we have with Oxlumo. So we're feeling pretty good about um, our, our prospects here. So you guys have been doing well with like rare diseases and all those indications, getting them approved. And, yeah. you know, now it seems like you're kind of moving into bigger frontiers. So I guess just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how you're thinking about moving into those markets and targeting things outside the liver. And like, why do you feel like at this juncture now, it's the time to kind of go for it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, look, I think, I think there's so much opportunity, okay. To address, you know, the residual unmet needs in a lot of common diseases and, um, you know, hypertension, NASH, gout, diabetes. I think, I think, I think the core of our confidence really lies in really the pharmacological properties of RNAi therapeutics. I mean, the fact that the durability allows infrequent dosing, which maximizes adherence. The clamp pharmacology really creates the potential to improve efficacy and outcomes. And now we've got like a really well-established safety profile with, you know, use of RNAi therapeutics, RNAi therapeutics in tens of thousands of patients in, in trials. And and this 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 platform, together with our strategy of really going after genetically validated targets, has given us a high probability of success so far. I'm sure you've seen the numbers that we've quoted where we've demonstrated a greater than 60% success rate transitioning from phase one into the clinic um, to positive phase three studies. Uh, and, and that's remarkable. That's a tenfold better success rate than, than the industry average. I think the other point is just just watching how you know things have gone with um, Lecfio in hypercholesterolemia. That's really kind of emboldened us um, to, to 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 think about applying our platform for much more uh, prevalent diseases. Um, you also you also talked about um, extrahepatic opportunities. I'm really excited about this as well. Um, of course, we're you know we're accessing CNS and ocular tissues through our collaboration. Um, with um with Regeneron. Um, the first CNS program there is ALN uh, APP. Um, and there we're targeting amyloid precursor protein for the potential treatment of early onset Alzheimer's disease with uh, cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And just you know in terms of the you know timelines um, there, um, we are we are planning to file CTA by the end of this year, um, and then that should set us up for um, you know initial POC data sometime next year. And I think you know the remarkable opportunity here is you know to think about not just um, not just um, uh, um, you know success in this one indication, but really this unlocking the um, CNS opportunity for us um, across, you know, a bunch of different kind of other, other diseases. So, um, you know, lots, lots, lots to go after um, from an extrahepatic perspective. Um, the other thing 
kind of maybe to add in here is just touch on the um on the uh on the um uh partnership with um peptidrine um that we recently um announced um which is going to help us explore delivery of rnai therapeutics to additional tissues so having solved the delivery of rnai therapeutics the liver and having made progress on delivery to the um, CNS um, and the eye and actually the lung, um, we think that there are a bunch of other tissues that we can look to go after through this um, collaboration, where we're hoping to identify robust ligand receptor pairs for extrahepatic tissue delivery, similar to the kind of Galnac ASGPR pair that we have pioneered for liver delivery. So um, lots to do in um, addressing large diseases but also really beginning to open up a new frontier for us um, um, in addressing diseases through delivery to um, other tissue types. Definitely. So maybe talk about Silvisaran, which obviously is kind of the largest indication that you have gone around in hypertension, but talk about some of the early data seen there and, and, and how you think about that opportunity. Yeah. So look, I mean, you probably heard us you know, say this before, but you know, Xylbisaran, which is our RNI therapeutic that we're developing for the treatment of hypertension, really gives us the opportunity to completely <clears throat> change how people think about treating this disease. This is a disease that, you know, hasn't seen <clears throat> any innovation for, you know, forever and a day. Um, and um, I think I think I think the approach that that, that we have in terms of being able to um, uh, achieve tonic control of blood pressure as well as um, addressing the issue of compliance, given the likely very infrequent dosing, quarterly or biannual, um, you know, should be able to deliver benefits on both tonic control and adherence. So just to let you know where the program is, we've just started our phase two um, study, Cardia 1 in monotherapy, and we'll shortly be starting Cardia 2, looking at Zalbisaran as an add-on therapy in patients taking other agents, RAS inhibitors, calcium channel blockers, et cetera. And, uh, you know, data's, you know, round the corner, really. We should have some data from the phase two program, you know, by the end of next year. Um, and from an approval perspective, you know, the regulatory endpoints are, are pretty straightforward. We need to demonstrate, um, you know, blood pressure lowering. And, you know, we've already seen this. We've already seen that Zalbisaran can achieve this in our phase one studies. So this is a this is a big opportunity for um, you know for um, patients in terms of transforming the treatment um, for them to a more kind of you know vaccine-like strategy. Um, and also it's a it's just a it's going to be a significant value driver for our nylon as a business. Awesome. Well, we're at time, Yvonne, and congrats on all the progress over the year. Thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you today, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.